get you working. Okay. You got flashlights? I see. Can I borrow yours, Luke? Thanks, Luke. Okay. So everybody's got your flashlights on? This is great. Anybody over here? You, you, do you have yours, Clay? Because there's not many of us, and we need all of them for this to work. Okay. But you really got to, everybody, I need everybody's flashlight on because this is going to, okay, you got yours? All right. Uh, let's see. Anna, I need you to turn the lights down. No, no, not your light, the, the church lights, so the building lights, just to be clear, the building lights. Okay, now everybody lift your phone up like this and go like this. I've always wanted to do that. <laughs> this is great, isn't it? Oh, all right, all right that's it. That's all I wanted to do with that. Here you go. So these are great little devices you can turn the lights back on so nobody falls asleep. What's have you ever done that before, like at a concert? I don't know. I almost like wanted, and I still haven't found, you know, or something, sing a song. But uh, they're, they're these great devices that are absolutely, I mean, they're just, we're, they're indispensable, aren't they? We've kind of got them in our lives now where we can't hardly live without them. They can do just about anything. Uh, you know, the other day I was on this thing with a, our missionary in Costa Rica having a FaceTime call, and it was like he was sitting there in the room with me. Okay, I got an iPhone 13 because I'm cool, and the rest of you, I don't know, but it was like his face was so clear and so real. It was amazing how well I could connect with our missionary, Josiah, in Costa Rica. It was so cool. But these things are really, you know, they're meant to do just about anything. You can search the internet, you can uh, play a game, you can learn a language, you can do almost, I, I can't think of anything you can't do. Is there anything you can't do? You can read the Bible on it. Is there anything you can't, I mean, it's amazing, right? It's absolutely amazing. And it's amazing how things have changed over the years because back when my wife's grandmother was in her late teens, she was an operator for Ma Bell, Bell Telephone Systems. And she was one of those women that sat in the room and had the headset and would say, yes, I'll transfer you. And they would plug in things and you would have to talk on this wireless or wired phone thing and it had to be attached. And it was just rudimentary and you could hardly understand. And the clarity of communication that can happen with one of these compared to that like 70 years ago is astounding. It's a tool for connection because humans are made for connection, and we love to connect with one another. We love to connect uh, with our kids. We love to be able to know where people are at and to call and to talk. Well, the reason we come to church is a lot like the purpose of the cell phone. It's to connect. It's to connect with God. It's to connect with the divine creator of the universe, the divine lover of our hearts and souls. Yet, you know, people all across our culture, even people who don't, would claim that they don't believe in God, have a longing to connect with something bigger than themselves. And that's why we go to big concerts. That's why we, uh, join, we join groups and we root for softball teams or football teams or baseball teams. And people don't usually root for softball teams, right? I don't know where that came from. Sometimes they do. Softball's a weird sport. I don't know. The ball's strange. But anyway, we root for baseball teams. We wear the jerseys. We want to connect and be a part of something bigger. And that's why we come to church. We want to connect with God. That's why we're here this morning. It's not, it's not for the lights, it's not for the sound, it's not for uh, the music, it's not for a great sermon, it's not even to just hear the Bible read, it is to connect with God. All of these things are just tools that help us connect. We pray as Christians to connect with God. We read our Bibles 
at home and at church to connect with God. We give of our finances in order to connect with God. We serve uh, we serve the body of Christ in a place like this. We help out so that other people can connect with God. We serve the poor and needy around us because we want them to connect with God. It's all about connection. It's what we're looking for, an encounter with God unlike anything we've ever experienced before. But it's interesting that sometimes some of the methods that we use to connect with God actually can make it harder to connect with them. Have you ever noticed that? So if you've ever been a part of a prayer service where you felt like, well, I can't pray like those people. Man, those people can pray in tongues. It's amazing. I can't do that, so I'm just going to be quiet. Or you, you, you listen, and somebody just has this really beautiful prayer that seems to really get to the heart of the matter. You're like, oh, I can never do that. Prayer is meant to be a connection with God, and then we get, we get stuck because we can't do it like other people. The Bible is the same way. The Bible is this massive book. It's beautiful, and it's intended. It was given to us as a gift by God so that we may connect with him. And yet, the things that are in the Bible sometimes become the greatest barriers to us believing in it, to us buying into it, to us being able to connect with God through it. Uh, right before COVID, I mean, literally right before COVID, and I'm looking at Sarah because she remembers this, right before COVID, we were going to do a sermon series called Ask, It's Okay to Ask the Pastor. And we put this box out, Sarah remembers, don't you? <laughs> we put this box out, we said, hey, what questions do you have about God and the church and the Bible? And put it, and, and listen, there's like 25 or 30 really deep and important and pain-ridden even questions that have been placed in this box. And the day after we were, to, or the day that we were to start this series, we actually literally shut the church. And so we had to, you remember the word pivot? Does everybody remember the word pivot? <laughs> Everybody's favorite word. We have to pivot. We pivoted and we did something completely different. And so I want to come back to not just the questions, but the questions that the culture has as we enter this new series we're calling How Not to Read the Bible. We want to tackle the things that are in the Bible that are really uncomfortable. And, and you guys that know me know that, that I don't usually shy away from these things, right? I like to jump in. I'm like, ooh, this is controversial. Let's talk about it. Ooh, politics? Let's talk about it at church. You know, that's a great idea. Certain to grow things. Uh, so we dive into them, and we're going to tackle them head on. Because the Bible, again, is a tool to connect with God. Scott McKnight, he's an author. He is, he is a, I think we have a picture of him up here with a quote, but he is the author of this book called The Blue Parakeet, which sounds really weird, but one of the best books I've ever read. I encourage you to read it. He is a professor, a biblical scholar uh, in the Midwest, and this is what he said about the Bible. He says, we are looking to take this two-dimensional words on a page into a three-dimensional encounter with God. I love how he said that. We're looking to move a two-dimensional words-on-a-page thing into a three-dimensional encounter with God so that the text takes on life and meaning and depth and perspective, and it gives us direction for our days. That's what we want. We want to encounter God, connect with Him, and have this three-dimensional experience, not a two-dimensional quiet time where we sit and like, oh, the boring Bible, or we get caught up in the, the really difficult things that the Bible has in it. And let's be honest with it. I mean, if you are an honest Christian and you have read the Bible from cover to cover, you have questions. There are things in there that are disturbing, 
that are irritating, that are like make no sense, that are hard to understand and are off-putting. And there are things in here that do not line up with our culture or with our world in any way, and we're like, what do we do with this? For example, for example, let's see. <laughs> I find my list here. All the weird laws and stuff, right? In the Old Testament, God must not love us because right at the get-go, he was banning shrimp and bacon, right? If God bans shrimp and bacon, it's not possible that he could love humans. We might see that he saved the best for last. We'll see. But that's one of those things that some people get stuck as they're reading the scripture. They get stuck there. Or why does it seem that God hates women? I mean, God doesn't seem to like women at all. If you read the Bible from cover to cover, he doesn't seem to. In fact, there's even hard things like you should be quiet if you're a woman. You shouldn't be speaking in church. And it's led to all sorts of abuses. It's led to all sorts of, of uh, misunderstandings. It's kept women sub sub subjugated, is that the word? Kept them down for the generation after generation because the church was the center of power. So how do we read scripture and read that stuff and say that God even likes women? Or how about this one? A lot of people say the Bible can't be true because we have all of this science that says the exact opposite of what it says in Genesis. How do we handle seven-day creation period when we see a fossil record that's billions of years old? Now, some Christians have, have you know, gone in a roundabout way to come up with a way to reconcile the two. Some people say they're irreconcilable, and some people say that's no fight at all. But we have to face that the culture is asking this question, and many of us are asking the question, too. Why does the Bible seem to be anti-science? How about, this is, uh, this one's hard for me, and this one comes right from Jesus, but there is one way to God. We live in a culture that really believes if I'm okay, you're okay, right? This is the world that we, we the soup that we swim in, and there's, this is what it is out there. I'm not like pointing fingers saying it's terrible, but we read a Bible that says that there is one way to God. We live in a culture that says there are many ways to God, many paths to reach the divine, and yet we have a scripture that says that there is one and only God. How do we reconcile this one and only God and say that he is loving when the world says to be loving is to be open to everybody? And the last one that's hardest for me is the TVMA rating that this book should get. And if you don't know what a TVMA is, it's mature audiences. It's like NC-17. It's that there's lots of skin and lots of mostly lots of death, gore, and blood. We see, as we read the pages, especially of the Old Testament, violent, violent conflict. And we see things that seem to collide. You have Jesus saying, you know, let the children come unto me. And then in the Old Testament, you have God the Father ordering the death of children. Why is it that Herod is such a bad guy for, for murdering all the children in the village trying to get to Jesus when God has done it in the Old Testament, ordered the entire death of villages of people from the old to the young and all of the livestock in between? How do we deal with this stuff? Now, as I said before, if you're an honest Christian, you've already asked some of these questions, and you may have wrestled through some of them, and that's great. Uh, but people in our culture who want to encounter God and who we want to encounter God, right? Your friends, your neighbors, your, your co-workers, the people around you, your students, the people that you want to encounter God are coming to the Bible and they're hitting these brick walls of questions. 
And so we want to challenge them, and we want to look at them and to take a deep dive into Scripture and what Scripture is and what Scripture is not, and really to learn how not to read the Bible, which is the way that many Christians for centuries have learned to read the Bible in ways that are inflexible, in ways that are uh, not what was intended, and taking things out of context. So we're going to talk all about this stuff. If, you're, you know, if you've experienced these questions, it's really kept you from God in some way, I want you to know you're not alone. Me personally, I have had doubts about God for a good portion of my Christian life. Doubting, there's nothing wrong with doubts. I believe in God with all kinds of doubts. And I want you to know it's safe to doubt here. It's safe to question here. And you're in good company because we're journeying together through these things. And, you know, we've been actually have a great guide to start with in this scripture. In the book of Luke, if you want to open your Bible, so the end of the book of Luke, after Jesus' death, after his resurrection, we come to this story in Luke chapter 24. So that was the series introduction. Now I have the sermon. Okay, so yeah, I was already, oh, that was a lot. That was a lot. It's all right. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35, a very long section of text. So what I'm going to do is read the beginning of it, and I'm going to tell the story that's in the middle, and then I'll read the end of it. Is that okay? All right. Here we go. Verse, where did I go? 13. Now on the same day, so the same day is the day that the women, the women female followers of Jesus, the female uh, some would say female apostles, Mary and Martha, were at the, or Mary, not Mary and Martha, Mary and Mary, uh, the two Marys, were at the tomb uh, to bury Jesus, to prepare him for his final burial, and finally he was gone. They come back, rush back, they tell everybody he is gone, right? So there's this whole story going around the disciples. Now it says, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So these two guys hear that the body is gone, and they freak out, and they say it's time to run. Some of them stayed in Jerusalem because they were like, wait a minute, there was all this resurrection stuff. What's going on here? But they said, somebody stole the body, and they're going to come after us because they think we did it. We're out of here. So we're going seven miles away, and they're on the road, and they're talking with each other about the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, this is beautiful, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And I think the reason they were kept from recognizing him was their grief and their fear and their doubts. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you're walking along? And they stood, so they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him. They're the only stranger to Jerusalem that does not know the things that have taken place in these days. And he kind of goes on, basically, he's like, what, are you stupid, right? Are you blind? Have you not read the news? Do you not get the newspaper? Have you been living under a rock, that you haven't heard what's happened in Jerusalem, that this guy came, this guy that we believed was the guy that was going to save all of Israel, and he was crucified by the Romans, and he was buried, and now his body is gone, and now these women who were, were with us, they went to the tomb and they said they saw him and that he is raised from the dead, and we don't know which end is up, and everything is a mess, and so we're out of here. We're running for our lives. And Jesus listened to all of the doubts, to all of the fear, to all of their questions, he just listened. And then, 
in verse 27, actually in verse 25, then he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. This is the really key verse here. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in the scriptures. And the story goes on, and they, they keep walking, and they invite him to stay with them in Emmaus. Now it's there, seven miles away from Jerusalem. They sit down to eat dinner, and he breaks bread. You know, he's like, hint, hint, guys. If you haven't seen it yet, hello. And he hands them the bread, and there's the scars in his hands. And it says this in verse 31. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening up the scriptures to us? This is the word of God for God's people. Thanks be to God, is what we say. So this is a story about these guys' doubts with fears and concerns about who Jesus is, what was going on around them, and how they were to believe in God when the things that they believed in had been suddenly taken away from them. And they believed that, the, that Jesus was the Messiah, and now he's dead and gone. And not only is he gone, but his body is gone. What are we to do with this? And Jesus doesn't avoid their questions or concerns. He asks, you know, what are you talking about? What, what's going on? And he allows them to dump, right? He allows them to just like verbally vomit on him all of their cares and concerns and worries, and he just listens. And then he comes and uses the scripture to bring them into an encounter with God. Because we, we are a Trinitarian church, right? We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. There's God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. That's like a whole sermon series on its own, how that works. We could talk about that some other time, but this is a big deal. He uses scripture to bring an encounter with the living God in their very presence. And their response to it is, weren't our hearts burning within us? How many of you would like to have a heart burning with God sort of encounter? I mean, to, to come to church and to hear somebody speak even a little bit in such a way that, that your heart just kind of you got racy, and you, you, you got a little excited, and it wasn't fearful, and it wasn't, it wasn't overwhelming or nervous. It wasn't something like, I can't be a part of that. It's this sense of welcome and belonging and, and love and this overwhelming sense of the presence of the living God coming upon you. One of the good things about being a Pentecostal, being a Pentecostal church, is that we hear every week that you can encounter God this way. It can happen. But as I said before, the Bible can often be a barrier to that sort of encounter because pastors preach it and then people are like, what? And they miss God because they're caught in the question. People go home and they want to have a quiet time and meet with God and have an encounter with God and they go, what? And they get stuck. So we need to talk about what this Bible, this book is and isn't and how Jesus uses it here to allow for this encounter to happen. Jesus uses the scripture very specifically, to have this amazing encounter with these guys. For Jesus, the Bible wasn't just a proof text, right? It wasn't an argument. It wasn't something we brought to the scientists to say, see, this is why you're wrong. It isn't something that we go to to see what makes us different from other Christians. This is God's living word. These pages, 
And this is why I encourage you to have a physical one, not just on your, on your phone. The phone is great, but uh, somehow having it in the physical printed form helps you see the big scope, the big carry of Scripture, and how much God is speaking through the whole thing, not just what you see on your screen. For Jesus, in this passage, we see that the Bible is not just a single book, but it's a library. So this is really helpful for you, and I want you to write this down. Think about this, that when you read the Bible, imagine yourself as you open the pages walking into a library, not into one book, not into one story, but a library of books. Jesus says here very specifically, he says, he went from Moses to the prophets. Now, that's the bulk of the the written scripture that Jesus had in his day. He had the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They had some of the oral history, and they had the Psalms and the prophets, which is Jeremiah and Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and some minor guys that wrote real short ones that are even weirder than some of those those other ones. There's a lot of big stuff in there, but they believed that all those things pointed to God, and they would read them together. And Jesus didn't come to them and say, oh, don't you remember from, from this one book, this one verse, It said this, no, he took all of them. He walked into the library, and he started in the law section. And then he took the law, and he showed it to him. And then he went to to the historical books, and he he told them that. And then he went to the Psalms, and he he showed them in the Psalms. And then he went to the prophets, and he showed them in the prophets. And he laid the whole case out using the whole library. The Bible is a library. When it comes to the Bible, you won't find uh, DIY furniture books or learning new language uh, helps in there like our libraries today. You won't find self-help books written in here. You won't find pop psychology, and there is nothing wrong with these things. This library is a little bit different. The library is 66 separate books spanning thousands of years of history written in about a 1,500-year time frame. 1,500 years it took to get all of this down. It wasn't written as it happened. Many things were written backwards. The Bible is a library that is filled with 13 different genres of writing. There's legal books. There is history books. There's historical narrative. I think there's historical fiction. Some people will get upset with me at that. That's okay. There's historical fiction in here as far as I'm concerned. There's poetry. There's wisdom literature. There's apocalyptic literature, which is unique. There's very little of it in the world, but some of it is in here, uh, which is all about how things end. There's the Gospels, another unique form, and then there's letters. And why is it so important to come to the Bible as a library? It's important to come to the Bible as a library because Well, let me put it this way. You would never read Harry Potter the same way that you would read a legal book, right? You got the Pennsylvania Crimes Code and Vehicle Law Handbook 2018 edition from my personal library. Not really. Uh, You know, and in here you're going to find out, like, what the penalty is for, you know, running a red light, right? What the penalty is for rear-ending somebody and who is actually at fault. Luke, our resident lawyer, knows all about this book, I am sure. He's got, it's going to tell you how, what you can and cannot do and how you will get in trouble. It is written very literally and in legalese very clearly. Whereas Harry Potter is a whole nother story, right? This is a story. This is an adventure. This is something that you immerse yourself into a world you go into. You don't go into the legal world. You find facts there. And in Harry Potter, you look for meaning. We read them very, very differently. And that's the same is true of the Bible as a library. 
We read history books different than we read poetry, like the Psalms. We read the book of Revelation differently than we would read the book of Genesis because they are different genres of writing and God communicating things to us in a different way than the other things that we read. If we read them mixed up like that, we will misinterpret and misunderstand what it's saying. It's very important to ask yourself as you come to Scripture, what part of the Bible am I in? What genre am I reading? Am I reading, am I reading a historical fiction here? Is this, is this you know, a story that's meant to make a point? Is it reality? Is it truth? Uh, like as we see history today, or is it poem? What, is it apocalyptic literature with stuff that makes zero sense to me or anybody else, but there is a point behind it? What is it that you're reading? The library tell, the, this library tells us one big story, though. There is a wholeness to it. We call it the unity of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, it tells one story because though it has uh, 40 different authors and voices throughout this book, there really is only one author, and that's God who gave us this word so that we could understand him, so that we could know who he is and what his interaction with us has been through history. However, and this is true with Jesus as well, that he understood that the Bible, while it was written for us, was not written to us. This is not written to you. You've often heard pastors say, this is the word of God to you, and it is not. It is the word of God for you, but it is not to you. And there's a big difference between those two things. Uh, regularly around here, we get mail for Pullman disposal. <laughs> Casey's like, yeah, it's really dumb. And here's how it goes. I go to the mailbox, I pull out the mail, and I look through, and I'm, I'm looking to get all the checks. To, I'm not looking to see what's in them, but I want to put them in the safe so that they're safekeeping and they get processed. So in comes this thing, and it's clearly a check. I don't look at the address. I open it. I pull it, and I'm like, who in the world is this person? And then I look at the address and I see, oh my goodness, this is for Pullman Disposal Services. This is something that I know, you know, it's a check, it's something I'm familiar with, it's mail, and yet it is not to me, and so it confuses me. The Bible is the same way. If we come to it thinking this is written to me, it will confuse me. It will confuse you. Because the contexts, the languages, the cultures, everything that these books were written to no longer exist, and we are separated by them by about 2,000 years, okay? It's a long time. Imagine somebody 2,000 years from now trying to understand our cell phone device. Like, that thing is so rudimentary. It's like us trying to go back. Have you ever seen the video of the kids trying to use the, uh, the dial phone from the 1960s? And they're like, what is it? I don't even know. And it takes them 10 minutes to try to figure out how to even dial a phone number it's you just get lost and it's the same way the bible is written for us it is written for everybody at all times in all circumstances in all of the world because this is god's word and yet it is not written to us because it's not in our language it's not in our cultural context it's not in our values it's not in our cultural mindset it's not even our view of history our view of history is that History is a record of facts as they happened. The truth about history is that history is a record of events and facts as seen by those who recorded them. The truth of the Bible is that history is a record of events with meaning, and the meaning is way more important than the facts of the events. So as you read scripture and you're looking for this for historical facts, the author doesn't care. It's not written to you. It was written to them thousands of years ago. He is concerned with meaning. 
and he is communicating a meaning, and that meaning is for you. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. We get caught up in application nowadays. This is what we, we always, well, what, is, what do I do? What do, you, what do you want me to do with this, pastor, is what I hear at the end of the sermon. Or if you sit down and you counsel somebody, so, okay, pastor, now's the time where you tell me what to do. We're concerned with application. That's our culture. Tell me what to do. The Bible is just to t- here to, to lead you to God and let God tell you what to do. We get so caught up and we get stuck when we don't know what to do with Scripture. And instead of knowing what to do with Scripture, we ought to posture ourselves in such a way to allow Scripture to have its way with us. We ask ourselves, what is the bigger story here? What did it mean to the original audience? And then we let that meaning and that truth wash over us. In order to do this, one of the things that I have to tell you to do, and this is what Jesus shows us here, he says again, from Moses to the prophets, he interpreted all the things about him in the scriptures. Jesus never read a Bible verse. And I never want you to read a Bible verse. Let that sink in for a second while I take a drink of coffee. Kathy, if you could look more confused, I think you would. You don't want me to read a Bible verse? Yes. I do not want you to read a Bible verse. Jesus didn't base his whole theology on one verse in the Bible. He considered the whole story from Moses to the prophets to the Psalms. But we come and we base our theology and we base our living all the time on one verse, right? We take one verse and this is my life verse or this is my whatever. And it's this thing we can point back to and it can be good, but we can get so off base because we are taking it way out of context. The Bible is not a source book for pithy one-liners or chicken soup for the soul. That is not what the scripture is. If you read the Bible in this way, you're going to have a problem because you're probably going to have to believe in unicorns. I'm serious. Take a look at this meme. Here it comes. Unicorns are mentioned in the Bible nine times and cats are mentioned zero times. And that's all you need to know about the Bible. Okay, this is for real. People are putting this kind of stuff out there, and this is how, I mean, this is highlighting, right? This is the highlighting the conflict of Scripture with people. How many of you know unicorns are in the Bible? None of you. How many of you read your Bible? Yes. Unicorns are mentioned, I believe, I didn't count, nine times. But you have to look at the King James Version of the Bible. In the King James Version of the Bible, it is pointed out nine times. In fact, here's a scripture that goes with it. The next slide. Isaiah 34, 7. And the unicorns shall come down with them, and their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust made fat with fatness. And that means that their fat is spilling out into the dust and made fat. That's really gross, isn't it? So this is like disturbing on a lot of levels. But right now, I just showed you guys unicorns in the Bible. Is anybody's faith shaken? Because um, we can talk afterward. It'll be okay. Unicorns in the Bible. So the, the uh, King James Version of the Bible is written in the 1500s, 1600s. And they had, uh, they had this word, and it was described from the Hebrew, and it described it a large horse-like animal with a horn on its head. And they were like, I don't even know what this is. And, but they did have something in their cultural reference, right? Because in Scotland, the unicorn is the, the state bird? No. What is it? It's the 
national animal, right? It's like this big mythical creature. It's powerful. And we got this idea of unicorns. And we can put, so they wrote in, whenever this word came up, they used unicorns. Because they had no idea that somebody would find in the fossil record an extinct animal that was similar to a rhinoceros, but more related to a deer that actually had one horn on its head in the Middle East back in the day. And we find it, and we had to translate it nowadays. If you're reading your Bible, it's translated as wild ox. It's as close as we could come to. And so in our cultural context, we understand a wild ox or a bison or a buffalo. But for these guys, a unicorn, right? You can't just read one Bible verse and shape your whole opinion of the Bible on that one verse. Nor can we take one Bible verse and shape all of our theology on it. Or we'll have to believe in unicorns. Okay? God often leads us to specific verse, verses as we read. One of the things I say to you, like, when you read the Bible, what glows? Like, what is the Holy Spirit, like, lifting off the page? Where does it turn three-dimensional for you? But I don't want you to take that thing and turn it into a theology for your entire life. I want you to critically think about it and say, okay, what, what, is the, what does this whole paragraph say to me? All right, what does this whole chapter, which are artificial anyway, what does this whole chapter say to me? And what is the point of this whole book? What's this whole book saying? And what is it saying to the people that it was written to? And now with this glowing versus what is God saying to me? Right then and right there. We have to ask these hard questions instead of just saying simply, oh, I just, if the Bible says it, I believe it. Which we hear all the time. If God said it, I believe it. And that means if it's in this, I believe it. And if that's true, then we need to believe in unicorns. But the reality is God wants us to use our brain because he gave it to us for a purpose and to ask, what is he really saying? And go take it a little bit deeper, to take it a little bit further and allow God to take this two-dimensional experience on a page and turn it into a three-dimensional encounter with God. Lastly, to finish this out, the entire Bible points to Jesus. The entire Bible, whether it's the unicorns in the Old Testament or the battles and fights that we read about, the hard, hard things that happened in the exile, uh, God leaving the temple at one point in the book of Ezekiel, all of the things that are written in there that don't make sense, that are hard for us to understand, even the shrimp that are banned in the book of Leviticus, all point to Jesus. And Jesus made that abundantly clear right here. He said, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. About himself. The scripture points to Jesus. In fact, in verse 44, um, it says this, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Jesus is like, this is all, not, this is about you, yes, this is about the world, this is about God's love for you, but there's a lot in here about me, and it's all points in my direction. Scripture points to Jesus. Scripture points the way to God. And I want you to hear this, that Scripture is not God. As many people have treated this as though this is a definitive uh, example of who God is. Uh, when I was a kid, it was forbidden to even put a coffee cup on your Bible because it is so holy and it reaches this level of worship that God never intended for this. This is a tool. This is a, a, a signpost. This is a message. It's a love letter. It's special. It's important. It's wonderful. It's meant to be read, right? It's not meant to be a coaster, but God doesn't hate you for putting your, your stuff on your Bible, just so you know in case you ever felt that way. I, but maybe that was for me. I needed to hear that today, okay? Maybe it's not for you. 
But we believe that, you know, there's some stuff, tough stuff about this, that, that Jesus is both God and man. And again, that's subject for another discussion. It's crazy hard to get our brain around. But then again, uh, so is dark matter, like this idea that the universe is filled with matter. It's just black and you can't see it. Like, but we accept that. Jesus is the son of God. And this all points to him. All scripture points to Jesus. And so when we experience doubts, when we experience things that are hard to understand, when we come across the random unicorn in the Old Testament and we think, what in the world is going on here? We hold in our hearts and in our minds the belief and the truth that that scripture somehow is pointing me to Jesus. Somehow it's taking me to the Son of God. We take our doubts and our disappointments to God, not the Bible. We take our, our hurts and our, and our hopes to God and not the scripture. And we allow, as we come to scripture, that scripture to point us to God. God is bigger even than the picture that we see in this text. In fact, if you're reading scripture and your vision of who God is is shrinking, if it's less magnificent, less wonderful, less awe-inspiring than it was before, you've not encountered God, you've encountered something else. You've encountered legalism, you've encountered judgmentalism, you've encountered hatred, who knows what you've encountered. But if it has shrunk your view of who God is, you didn't encounter God. But if you walk away from reading this scripture and you've encountered Jesus and your mind is expanded and your heart is enlarged and you find yourself wanting to move in a different direction in life, then you've met the living and true God, the divine one who created us, who loves us, and who seeks relationship with us. When we get confused and we have big questions, when something in here bothers us or seems culturally irrelevant or inappropriate, turn to Jesus. We got all kinds of tough questions, and God's cool with that. And we can bring them to him, just like these disciples did that day. And he's going to meet us there. And I want to leave us with this, this phrase from them. Because what I want to do this morning, really what I hope, is to create a longing in your heart for an encounter with God that sounds like this. We're not our hearts burning within us. We're not our hearts burning within us. If you're new around here, uh, something that we like to do in our services to, to end them is uh, we like to take a minute of silence because we believe that God speaks even in silence, right? It's the still small voice that we read about in the Old Testament. God wasn't in the wind. God wasn't in the fire. God wasn't in the earthquake. God wasn't in the giant band. God wasn't in the amazing message. That God was in the still small whisper the sound, in fact, if you <laughs> translate the Hebrew, it's this. The sound of sheer silence that God spoke. Yeah, get your brain around that, right? Talk about God, Jesus being both man and God. The sound of sheer silence. What even does that sound like? So we take a minute and allow the Holy Spirit to just speak in that time of silence. And I like to ask a question. And my question for you this morning as we embark on this journey in how not to read the Bible is this question, what is blinding you to an encounter with God? The disciples were kept from seeing. What was it that kept them? The scripture doesn't say. I have a guess. I think it's their questions, their doubts, their fears. What's blinding you to an encounter with God? I'm going to give us a full minute of silence, and then we'll close with a prayer, and then we're going to have a chance to, to meet each other again. Um, and that's really... Something I'm looking forward to meeting all of you again today and 
spending time with you. So let's, let's be silent before the Lord. Ready? that some of us in this room just now had an encounter with you. They heard your voice clearly speaking. And I pray that for those who did this and they're in this moment and they were ready to hear from you, that the seed that you spoke into existence would be planted deeply in their hearts and it would grow and flourish and become uh, a, a great tree that, that many can shelter under and shelter in, God, as your word says, that it would grow in them and produce much fruit and be a place um, that gives back to the rest of the church and to the world around them. God, I pray that their hearts would burn in this encounter for you, that they would experience you um, in their physical body, not just their mind. And God, for those who, who just heard silence and are, are worried or concerned that maybe, that maybe you speak to some people, but not everybody, that you love some people, but you love us all differently, that if somewhere inside of us we are concerned, Lord, that, um, that maybe you, there is a God and that you're out there but you don't see us, I pray that they would um, experience your peace today. Uh, that they would come again and again to listen and to hear and that you would meet with them in the midst of their questions and their concerns and their doubts and their worries and their fears. God, I pray that you would open each of us up to you, soften our hearts, open our eyes, turn your face to us, and give us your peace. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to encourage you this week, open up the Bible. Take a look at what's in here. Read it for yourself. You, if you haven't or you don't, a great place to start is in the Gospels, if you ever have. The book of John is a great book to start with. So that's about the middle of the Bible, and you open it, and then you start seeing really familiar names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Take a start there and read what's in here. 
And not just one Bible verse, but read the story and allow God to speak to you through it this week. Go in the grace of our Lord and know that Jesus loves you. He really does. The whole scripture points to that truth. And I love you too. This church loves you, and we want you to be a part of this family, and we will see you next week. Casey is on the backspace for questions about stuff that's coming up. We've got uh, really great gifts that you want to get if you're a guest. You, like, if they're super cool. And come join us at Boyer afterward. We're just going to go hang out at the beach. How many churches are you like? We're just going to go hang out at the beach. No plan. We're going to stick our feet in the water if it's warm enough. If it's not, we're going to eat. And we're having a snack luck. Make that really clear. Bring snacks. Snack luck. Snack party. All right? We'll see you guys in a couple hours at Boyer. Uh, amen.